Today's scripture reading will be in Genesis chapter 45. I'll be reading the whole chapter today. Genesis 45, starting at verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his fathers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive from many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt from your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave three hundred shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we finally made it. We finally made it. The, the, this is the moment that we've all been waiting for for months. Every, everything's been moving steadily to this point. You know, the, the soundtrack that's playing in the background 
has been swelling to this climax. It's the big reveal. And I've always been a sucker for big reveals. I think I shared with you before how much I love the, the final three minutes on any show on HGTV. Um, where they've you know, spent all the time restoring this place and then finally they can pull back the cameras and show us what it, what it looks like now. But even more than that, and this is going back a number of years, I, I've always loved the final three minutes of Scooby-Doo. You know? The unmasking. Uh, as much as Shaggy loves a sandwich, I, I loved that clutch moment when it's revealed that the villain is none other than, say, a harmless professor from earlier in the show. And, and you get that moment when someone reaches over and pulls off that villain's mask. Uh, it's a wonderful moment. And the big reveal in our passage is a little different than that. It's not a great analogy. Because here, it's not the villain that's unmasked, but the victim, if we could use that terminology. Um, probably a better analogy comes from the show Undercover Boss. I, I've actually, maybe, hopefully you know what I'm talking about, because I don't. I, I haven't actually seen an episode, but I, I think I understand the premise. And this is where a wealthy owner disguises himself and takes an entry-level job at the company that he owns. And unbeknownst to these co-workers, you know, they, he, he's being trained by his own employees. And they show him all the ropes. They, they show him all the shortcuts, all the cheats, you know. He, he hears them say all kinds of nasty things about customers and about co-workers and probably about the higher-ups, the bosses, the executives. And then comes the moment of the big reveal where they learn that the, you know this minimum wage guy over here is actually their boss. And like I said, I, I guess I need to see a show, but I can only imagine that they are horrified in that moment that they're frightened in that moment. You, you, you probably can see these people just panicking as they try to recall what they might have done or said that they're going to have to now pay for now that the tables have been turned. But, but we're so accustomed to these highly produced TV shows, scripted shows, let's just be honest, that we can easily predict the outcome of Joseph's reveal. You know, it's a, it's a made-for-TV kind of outcome. It's, a, it's nothing but reconciliation and a happy reunion and hugs and kisses all around. That's what we've come to expect, and we would be shocked if it was otherwise. But I don't want you to take that outcome for granted. Okay, because in real life, the opposite outcome is way more probable. It, it's much more realistic to expect that a big reveal like we're having this passage, a big reveal like that would result in fear and guilt on the one hand 
and bitterness and resentment and a desire for retribution on the other hand. What I'm saying is that in real life, something like this is just fraught with potential for disaster and a disaster that might have impact for years to come. Uh, think about it. This is how many, this is how so many of our confrontations conclude. Uh, they conclude with resentment rather than reconciliation. So, so many of our confrontations with people result in angry tears, not happy tears. Isn't that right? So let's, all I'm saying is let's not take this positive outcome for granted. Let's not just expect this as a matter of course. Let's ask how, let's ask why this big reveal results in forgiveness and reconciliation and intimacy. Because that's not a, a, a normal kind of outcome here. Let's ask why, what is going on that this is possible? And if those sorts of things, forgiveness, reconciliation, intimacy, if those outcomes are attractive to you, and they should be, then you, then you might be interested to discover how it is that they're generated, not just in Joseph's life, but in your own. So we'll take a closer look at this passage, and I want to examine it under two main headings. If you're taking notes in your bulletin or... On our app, we're getting increasingly hip, so you could even take notes electronically, however you want to do it. If you're taking notes, uh, first we want to understand what was for Joseph a controlling conviction, a controlling conviction, and then towards the end we'll want to just tease out some important implications that flow from that conviction. A controlling conviction followed by some important implications. And as I said just a minute ago, this will be a little bit different. This is more of a theological, big picture, bird's eye view. And then we'll try at the end to, to just uh, mine from some of the wonderful details that are in this text to look at some important implications. First, though, a controlling conviction. So what, what do I even mean by controlling conviction? I'm talking about a bedrock belief that also behaves. I'm talking about a doctrine that does stuff. I'm talking about a proposition that actually propels you. I'm talking about, uh, if you could put it this way, theology in a tracksuit, theology that's, that's ready to, to get down to some work, theology that doesn't just stimulate your brain, but energizes your heart and your hands and your feet and your lips, that's, that's what we're interested in. That, that's where real, real change and impact comes from. It comes from orthodoxy that leads to orthopraxy, if I could throw a big word at you. And that simply just means orthodoxy is right believing 
that leads to orthopraxy, which is right doing. Those two are intimately connected. And so if we want to understand why Joseph is such a compelling character, and he is, I think we're all um, drawn to him over the course of these chapters, but you want, you want to try to put your finger on what makes Joseph such a compelling character. Why does it seem like everything that, that he does is, is measured and, and merciful? I think the most helpful question that we could ask to get at that is, what, do, what does Joseph believe? What does he believe? He's behaving in a particular way that's flowing out of what he's believing. So what is he believing? What is the underlying conviction that is controlling him? And thankfully, we don't need to speculate because Joseph is very quick to teach us his theology. And here it is. Here's the, the engine room of this chapter, Genesis 45. It's the portion between verses 5 and 9. The, the real center of this beautiful chapter, the thing that's, that's creating all of the steam and the energy for all of the wonderful things that we see is Joseph's theology that he outlines in verses 5 to 9. And in that section, Joseph makes four statements about God and about God's actions. Look, look there with me and see if you can see them with me. And here they are in their simplest form. Verse 5. Look at verse 5. Joseph says, God sent me. Verse 7. God sent me. Verse 8. But God, and implied is, sent me. Verse 9. God has made me Lord of Egypt. As I say, these are theological statements about the sovereign workings of God. This is Joseph's core conviction that's controlling all of his subsequent actions and attitudes. Now, what do I mean when I say that God is sovereign? Well, we're, we're probably most familiar with that term sovereign as it applies to royalty or per people in power. An earthly king, for example, is said to be sovereign because he has a kingdom. He has a dominion which he rules over and uh, he, he oversees everything that goes on in that dominion and he executes orders. He has subjects, and all of those subjects do his bidding. No one would dare resist that king, that sovereign, let alone question him to ask him, you know, what are, what are you doing? You, you might get, I don't want you to take this analogy too far, but you think about someone like Putin, right? He is a, he's a sovereign, he's a, a wicked sovereign, but, but he, he, he's free to carry out his whims and his fancy. He, he, he desires more territory, and he goes out and gets it. And, and 
there's it doesn't appear to be anyone that's that says to him no what are you doing you're a lunatic he, he's a sovereign you, who's going to resist him now if that's true for an earthly king we mean all of this and more and all in the in a good way when we describe god as sovereign okay god's kingdom is the whole world and not just the earth but heaven where he rules and he reigns and he decrees everything that is to come to pass everything nothing falls outside of his will and outside of his rule and outside of his control and similarly no one resists his decrees God is all-wise, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, so he has everything at his disposal, disposal for, for carrying out his eternal will. That's what it means, basically, to say that God is sovereign. In short, it means that God is God, and he takes all of the rights and the prerogatives of being God. He's not God as we imagine him, He's God as he truly is, with all of the power and all of the goodness to execute all of his will. Now, Moses has been teaching us about the sovereignty of God all throughout the, the book of Genesis. I hope you've picked up on some of that. And he's been teaching it to us, really, from the very beginning. If you look at Genesis chapter 1, you're there confronted with a God who purposes to do something and then he, he he's got the power to do it and so he acts to accomplish his purpose he wills to create and so he creates you know he purposes something like let there be light and instantly there is light that is the work of a sovereign god who not only wills but has the power and the authority and the wherewithal to bring it into being he says let us make man in our own image and so god creates man in his own image male and female he created us as revelation chapter 4 verse 11 says worthy are you our lord and god to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created this is our sovereign God. And friends, this is the ultimate explanation for everything that exists. Whatever exists, exists purely by the will of a sovereign God. Now, for the most part, we're fine with that. For the most part, mankind is, is happy to acknowledge this theology. We've, we've got no problem uh, with God's sovereignty and providence as it pertains to most areas of life. For example, we're glad that God is, is ruler and sovereign over the weather, say. And we're especially delighted in that when he sovereignly wills that there would be 60-degree weather in Dansville, in the in the middle of March. We're fine with that. We're, we're more than fine with that. Where we start to get a little bit uncomfortable with this doctrine 
is where it starts to brush up against the will of man. You realize, don't you, that naturally we, we hold a very strong conviction called the sovereignty of man? We're, we're eager to preserve and guard for ourselves the right to make free and self-determined decisions. We prize, I think more highly than almost everything, we prize our freedom, our autonomy. You know, to take an example of something that the membership matters and the adult class is going to be discussing in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be asking, is God sovereign in salvation? Can God will and choose and gift and save as he sees fit? Most people are okay with that, but, but only up to a certain point. We're very comfortable with any, uncomfortable, I should say, th this makes us really squirrely, with, with the, anything that even approaches the idea that the human will is going to be encroached somehow by the divine will. And so we end up saying things like, things that we don't think very deeply about. We say things like, God is a gentleman. He would never force his way in. This is why you see flannel graph pictures of Jesus who, who's knocking on a door that doesn't have a knob on the outside. That's the door to your heart, and, and the idea is it can only be opened by the inside. There's some things that even Jesus can't do. As I say, there, we're happy to acknowledge the sovereignty of God as far as it goes, but ultimately, we believe in something higher and that is the sovereignty of man. Now, part of our resistance surely has something to do with our inability to really grasp how God's sovereignty works alongside of the, the freely willed actions of human beings. We have such a hard time putting those two things together. And things get even more confusing when you add in the element of sin. You know, how can the freely willed, sinful actions of human beings ever be spoken of as under the umbrella of God's sovereignty? That, that makes our brains explode. And it's, we don't even want to go near there. We, we think, well, doesn't that make him the opposite of a gentleman? Doesn't that, doesn't that whole setup then make him the author of evil, which the Bible clearly says that he's not? And so it's, we, we can't make sense of these things. And I'm, I'm really sorry to disappoint you here, but I'm not going to be able to solve that one for you today. And maybe not ever. The job you've given me what you've set me aside to do is to teach what God has revealed in his word. And I'm here to tell you that the word of God teaches these twin truths side by side. That mankind does make free choices, which are often evil, and choices for which we are totally responsible. And 
that God is absolutely sovereign and that he's executing his will down to the most meticulous detail. Both of those things together is what the Bible teaches. And let me just give you two examples of this. Uh, the first example concerns our sanctification, our growth in godliness and holiness. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, he, he, it's a command that comes to us, and he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's our responsibility. If you don't do that, you're, you're sinning. And then Paul continues, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And that's a clear statement about God's sovereign will and work in your life. So let's just ask, okay, our growth in holiness, whose responsibility is this? Ours or God's? And the answer, of course, is yes. Now, how about what Peter says to the Jewish people in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, concerning the death of Jesus? He says this, This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Okay, so that, that's the evil that they desired. That's the evil that they carried out. But in the same breath, Peter says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, please understand, we're talking about the cross, and if God is not absolutely sovereign over every detail as it pertains to the cross of Christ, then he's not sovereign over anything. The cross stands at the center of human history. It's God's own remedy for our sin. It's his master plan from before the foundation of the world, whereby he sends his own son as a spotless lamb, a perfect sacrifice, a, a substitute for sinners like you and me. And, and as Jesus bears our sins, and then as he bears the wrath of God that our sins deserve in our place, we are reconciled to God through faith. God has to be sovereign over all of that, or else we're finished. But we're thinking, Peter, make up your mind. Did Jesus die by wicked hands or by the hands of God? But Peter would say, I don't have to make up my mind. Both are true. We, as I said, we have such a hard time reconciling these twin facts, but I, I want you to at least recognize that the Bible never seems to be embarrassed to have both of these things in the same sentence, holding both truths in tension. I would be very happy if we could just leave it there. If we could even just agree on that point, I would consider it a very profitable time spent together. If we could simply agree that there is a biblical balance between the actions of free and responsible creatures and the absolute sovereignty of God. 
But actually, I, I want to take you further because Joseph's controlling conviction takes us further. I, I said I'd be happy if you could see the balance, but now I want, I want you to consider tipping the scales. Would you consider tipping the scales? Because let's just transfer what we've learned already to the present situation. Why is Joseph in Egypt? Well, we could easily say it's his brother's fault. The, these are wicked and cruel men, and, and they, first of all, contemplated his murder, but then they settled for, for selling him into slavery when they realized that they could at least make some silver off the deal. And we're not even just making that explanation up. In the previous couple of chapters, you'll remember, we, we've seen how the Lord has been graciously working in these brothers and has brought them to a point of confession of this wickedness, of their sin. The Lord's brought them to an admission of their guilt. So Judah, speaking for his brothers, he's able to say in the previous chapter, verse 16, God has found out our guilt. And before that, he and his brothers admitted, in truth, we're guilty. So when we, when we put this down to the brothers' wickedness, they would be concurring with us. Yes. Are the brothers responsible for Joseph being in Egypt? Are they responsible for all of his mistreatment and injustice that he experienced along the way? Absolutely. No question. But let's just hear Joseph's take. Okay, verse, verse 4. I am your brother whom you sold into slavery. Yes, okay, that's... That's what we would expect, um, to acknowledge their actions as evil. And then in verse 5 to 7, Joseph gives strong statements about the sovereignty of God in the situation. So, so this is setting up to be according to this biblical pattern that I've set forth for, with, with you just in these few minutes, that that Joseph acknowledges their evil actions, they sold him into slavery, and in verses 5 to 7, he's making clear statements about the sovereignty of God, so it seems like he's setting up this pattern of holding these two things in tension, right? Twin statements about human responsibility and the sovereignty of God held in perfect tension. But now look at verse 8. Look at the synthesis. Look at the Joseph's conclusion of the matter. He says, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. What? That, Joseph, you, you had established, you, you just established the perfect balance, but then you go and tip the scales to the side of sovereignty? Why would, why would you go and do that? Because that's the right place to land. That's the right place to land. That's where you need to live. As Spurgeon once said famously, God's sovereignty is the pillow upon which you lay your head. In the final analysis, God's sovereign will is supreme. 
and it trumps every other factor. See, when you set up a, a relationship about God's will and human will, it creates the illusion, which is the illusion, that those two wills are kind of equal. But no, God's sovereign will is supreme, and it trumps everything else. It's an ultimate reality that is the basis for our comfort and our confidence. And, and so Joseph is dwelling on the side of, of the ledger that sees that everything that has happened to him, he's seeing it through the lens of God's providential purposes for his people. Joseph understands that it's ultimately not even about him. It's all about God and God's people. So look at what he says at the end of verse 5. He says, God sent me before you to preserve life. And again, verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep alive many survivors. Joseph is able to locate himself and see himself kind of caught up in this grand plan of God who is actively fulfilling all of his promises that he's made to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob to make this crew into his people, a great nation, a great people. And obviously there's, a, there's now a terrible famine that is threatening those promises and those purposes. A famine, by the way, if we had time to look at more of these details, we'd discover by what Joseph says, it's only in year two of seven. This is going to get even more brutal. And Joseph has been sent by God as the vehicle by which his people and his promises are going to be preserved. Now, I've mentioned this to, to some of you just individually or in counseling situations or whatever, but I think it bears repeating here that if you were to analyze your words and your thoughts if you were to just kind of be really scientific and mathematical about it, you would see that you're, it, it kind of takes the shape X, but Y. You can write that out if it helps you. X, but Y. And I'll give you an example. You could say something like, I know I need to be patient with my kids, but they're hellions. Okay? So the X part is, I know I need to be pa patient with my kids. The, the Y part is, they're hellions. Do you, you don't know that word? They're bad kids. They're terrible. <laughs> they're mischievous. X, but Y. And what I want you to understand is that whatever comes after the but is where you're going to land. Okay, so in my example, the, the, the fact that if you say it like that, I know I need to be patient, but my kids are uh, imps. What do, you, what do you people say? <laughs> my kids, that's the, the thing that comes after the but is what you're going to land on. You're going to land on my kid is a brat. Or you could switch it up, okay? You could, you, could say, you could say it differently. You could say, I know my kids are hellions, but I need to be patient. 
Do you see the difference? Where are you landing in that second example? You're landing at the need to be patient with your children. After the but is where you're going to live. And that's what you're going to dwell on. And that's what you're going to operate out of. Now, the shape of Joseph's words are very similar. He says, it's X, but Y, or a variation of that, not X, but Y. And, and the shape is this, you, but God. If you're looking at the tension, you've got the you part, but, but God. You know, human evil, but God's sovereignty. And do you see, it's, it's what you put after the but that you're going to land on. And what Joseph's landing on is God's sovereignty and his providential purposes. He's not landing on all of the terrible things that have happened to him. So uh, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, Derek Kidner, he summarizes this so nicely, I think, when he writes, the words, you sold me, you sold me, God sent me, he says, that's one of the classic statements of providential control in all of scripture. That's, and he says, this is biblical realism to see clearly the two aspects of every human event. On the one hand, the human mishandling and the blind workings of nature. And on the other, the perfect will of God. And to fix attention on the latter, as alone being of any consequence. You've got these two things. What are you going to fix your attention on? What are you going to regard as being supreme and ultimate? And of any consequence whatsoever, it's going to be on the fact that God is accomplishing his sovereign purposes in your life. And so this is what Joseph is going to fix his attention on. And it becomes for him a controlling conviction. And it becomes for him something that has implications for all of his words and all of his actions that follow. And I'm going to just, let's turn to some of those as we wrap up. This is going to just have to be uh, like a sampler platter at your favorite restaurant. And I would encourage you, maybe even this afternoon, to go back into this chapter looking to tease out some of these implications. But let me, just, let me just tease you with a couple of them. This perspective, I'm going to land on the sovereignty of God. My core conviction is that God is accomplishing all of his purposes for me. That has tremendously important implications. Number one, for bitterness. When it comes to bitterness. Now, this big reveal, this, this is, we could script this very differently. And as I suggested earlier, in our lives, this, this plays out quite a bit differently. We relish the opportunity to spring something on our adversary we're relishing opportunities to kind of just unleash on people and to give them a taste of their own medicine 
to savor that moment where they're kind of caught, paralyzed in fear, and finally we can just say everything that we've wanted to say to them for so long. But that's not what happens here. In fact, the, the, the impetus for the big reveal is the fact that Joseph can barely contain himself, and, and he's not containing the emotion of anger. He's not barely containing his anger. He's barely containing his, his emotion of, of love. He, he's dying to just break out in tears and weep. And you see what unfolds. You see the, the kissing of necks. You, you see all kinds of talking and catching up. You, you see just in, incredible displays. He says, come, come near me. He wants to be close with his brothers. These same brothers. And, and actually, when you think about it, could there be a more moving passage in Scripture that, that, that shows the reconciliation and, and the desire for intimacy with people that have really sinned grievously against you? And in the whole context here, I'm suggesting the, the reason that Joseph can have this, this heart and this behavior towards his brothers and not just constantly hold them at an arm's length and from this time forth and forever more, more you know, have, be really suspicious of them. And yeah, maybe they'll hug, but it'll be that kind of cold kind of hug where you know, you know the person's not really yielding. It's not a real hug. Don't we do this with our family members, our neighbors, our coworkers that we have conflict with? We're, we're able to, you know, plaster on a smile, but we know there, there's been no real reconciliation. What is going to drive true reconciliation and intimacy, friends? It's going to be your acknowledgement that everything that has happened to you has happened under God's sovereign rule and control. And he's accomplishing all of his purposes for you in your life. That frees you up to just love people. And it frees you up to love nasty people. This has tremendous implications for guilt. So just change the party here for a second. We've been thinking about how Joseph's reacting. How do the brothers react? Verse 3. But his brother, he says, I'm Joseph. Is my father alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed as his, at his presence. And then he explains again, and in verse 5 says, Now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. Do you see what he's trying to, what he's trying to address right from the get-go? Is that same kind of fear that you would have if you realize that this person that you were, this coworker that you were trashing your boss to is actually your boss. You would be flipping out. You, you'd be almost paralyzed thinking, oh no, I'm toast because I'm, I'm guilty. And right away, right away, Joseph is, is trying to deal with their guilt and he's saying, you, you don't need to feel this way. Why? Just listen to his argumentation. Don't, verse 5, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me 
before you to preserve life. He's landing on the sovereignty of God, and that enables him to comfort sinners with the fact that they have sinned grievously against him, but they need not feel guilty in light of the overarching supreme consideration that God is is doing what he intends all along. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not a way to just dismiss sin. As we've been seeing these last couple of weeks, you know, the brothers have been, the Lord has been dealing with them according to their sin. He's brought them in terms of uh, confession and repentance. And, and now there's, there's reconciliation that comes as the right result of all of that. But, but Joseph's comfort is rooted and grounded. It's being controlled by this conviction that he has that God is sovereign. And then uh, think about the implications for obedience. If you just scan through the, the passage, you'll see that what happens next is just a lot of commands to the brothers. They're to come now and live in Egypt. This is going to be the means by which Joseph is going to be able to preserve them and keep them alive as a unit. This is all part of God's plan. He's even announced it earlier to the patriarchs that they before they take possession of the land that he promised them, that they would have to live as aliens and strangers. This is all according to plan, but um, provisions now need to be made. And these brothers have to follow very specific instructions. Pharaoh gets in on the action, and he's so happy about this that he wants to bless this family for the sake of his right-hand man, Joseph, that has saved this whole country. And so you see the generosity of Pharaoh that is sending wagons and animals that are just heavy, laden with blessings and gifts. And what's going to make these brothers obey all of these commands? What's going to make Jacob uh, obey to come and dwell in this land as a stranger? It's going to be a recognition of the fact that all of this is happening according to the will of his heavenly father. And friends, the same thing is true with you. What is going to make you obey and me um, do what the Lord has said as we go out from this place and into the world, into our daily routines? What is going to be responsible for our obedience? It'll be a controlling conviction that we are part of God's purposes for the world. What is going to make us go with Cheryl and Odie to the ends of the earth and engage unreached people groups with the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's a, it's a controlling conviction that God has a people for his praise from every tongue and tribe and people and language and nation, and that it is our call, it is our responsibility we would, we would be disobedient if we didn't go out under that gracious umbrella and do what he's called us to do. And we do so joyfully. Think about the implications. Uh, just hang with me for a couple of minutes. Think about the implication for quarreling. And uh, I think you young people, you kids, you hellions should uh, take special uh, pay special attention to this. I just love, one thing I love about Genesis and about Moses, the narrator, is that he's got these really realistic t 
touches. You remember a few weeks ago when he says to, uh, where Jacob says to the sons, they're, they're all starving, they're hesitant to go back to Egypt. And he says, what are you guys, what are you guys standing around looking at each other? Get going. That's a very dad thing to say. And, and here's, here's another thing that you would hear in the context of a family. You would hear uh, what Joseph says to them at the end of verse 24. As they go back to um, Canaan, he says, hey, and don't quarrel on the way. That, have you ever been part of a family? You hear, you hear that all the time. I remember when I was a kid and we, I, I must have been nine or ten. And we were taking this family trip to go see friends in Duncanville, Texas, from, Tor from Toronto, okay? Huge trip. And I don't think it, I think we were out of our Chevy Chevette, four kids. I think we had upgraded to a Plymouth Reliant K car with no air conditioning. And I know that for a fact because I had a Keith Green tape that I accidentally left on the dashboard and it melted into a puddle. So my dad, he's a, he's a pretty, pretty sharp guy. Even before we set out on the trip, he made all of us kids sign a contract. <laughs> and it was basically to the effect of there would be no, nor, no quarreling. And Joseph is so insightful because he's, he's saying, look, when you guys are going home, I don't want there to be any finger pointing, self-justification. There's going to be none of this, I told you so's. You know, some of that had already started up when they were in prison uh, a little while ago. And you think, well, how is that even possible? How could these guys, a few minutes ago, they were feeling guilty. They, they were in danger of being overwhelmed by guilt. How could it be that now they'd be in danger of trying to justify themselves and point their fingers at their brothers for being the more guilty party. And isn't that realistic too? That we can go so easily from being guilt-ridden to an attempt to justify ourselves? What makes for peace? What makes, what, what, would, what would make you feel like, I don't need to do any kind of self-justification. I don't have to prove to myself or other people that I'm in the right and they're in the wrong. I'm suggesting that the thing that's going to really control you in that situation is an overwhelming understanding of God's goodness and his grace and his sovereign workings in your life. And then finally, I just have to just share one more implication. It has tremendous implications for unbelief. And we see this when the, she the scene shifts back to Canaan and we have Jacob standing there and he sees all of his sons coming towards him and all of this stuff. And then, his br and then the sons have to tell him that Joseph is still alive, verse 26. Joseph is still alive and not only that, he's ruler over all of Egypt. And Jacob, you'd think he'd be really excited about this, but what, what is his initial response? The, the text says that his heart became numb because of unbelief. This is like, 
he, he's thinking, I don't even know what to believe anymore. These guys are all over the place. And not only that, but that's way too good to be true. Here I am grieving over this sad loss for so many years. How do I even dare hope that they could, this could possibly be true? And, you, and it actually has some resemblances, doesn't it, to the way that the disciples... Uh, responded when the women came back and told them the good news about the empty tomb. What do what we read about the disciples? We, we read that they were just confused and kind of disbelieving the whole thing. They're numb. They had this, this numbness that Jacob experienced. And then what happened is slowly as the evidences start piling up, and as, as reports of appearances start piling up, they, they realize that it is true. And that knowledge fills them with great joy. This is what obviously is happening with, with Jacob. He, he's numb, he's in disbelief, but can you argue with like dozens of donkeys that are loaded down with all of the good stuff of Egypt and these great big carts so that I can ride back to Egypt in style? I mean, this must be true. And so he comes to the point of belief. He says, it is enough. Enough, I believe. Jo Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And friends, the thing that is going to propel me and you out of our unbelief and to move forward in strong faith and belief in the promises of God is if we come to understand that God is absolutely sovereign and that he is busy about the work of accomplishing everything that he has set out to do every one of his promises that he has made to you he is eager to fulfill even as they are fulfilled in the lord jesus christ and that ought to prompt our our belief and our faith and our obedience and our joy it ought to free us up to love one another to forgive one another to have real intimacy. We are humbled by a view of such a God. We, we understand how different we are by contrast. And it makes us just rejoice in uh, all that he has been pleased to reveal to us and then to accomplish in us through Christ. Amen. Amen.